Hello, I'm Tristan Abbey, editor-at-large of the Aaliyah Review of Books. This is episode 11 of the Aaliyah Review podcast. Today, I welcome Professor Robert Hoyland of New York University's Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. He is the author of several books in the history of Islamic civilization, including In God's Path, The Arab Conquests and the Creation of an Islamic Empire, published in 2014 by Oxford University Press, and the translator and editor of The History of the Kings of the Persians in Three Arabic Chronicles, published in 2018 by Liverpool University Press. Dr. Hoyland, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tristan. Nice to talk to you. Well, before we dive deeper into the books themselves, I wanted to ask you a broader question, and that is, how has the field of the history of the Islamic world changed over the course of your own career? What were the big questions when you started? What are the big questions now? I suppose the, especially the Arab conquests and the beginnings of the Islamic empire were seen when I started out as something very distinct from the rest of world history. It was rather self-contained, not really relating to developments in the broader history of the Middle East. So there's been though an increasing endeavor, I suppose, to try and understand it in the late antique context of what was happening before. And what does it mean to talk about the emergence of a new civilization? Does it simply mix up elements that were already there? How are new elements brought in? How does it become a distinct civilization in its own right? So over the course of my career, I suppose there's been more thinking about how does this fit? We had beforehand, we had the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire in the East, Persian Empire disappears, the Arabs wipe it out, Roman Empire basically loses about half its territory, and then in place you get this new Islamic Empire, and it seems to us very different, so how did that happen? And, and that's what the bigger question that I was trying to understand and represent in my book, In God's Path. Could you share with us just a little bit about your doctoral work on this question of how the Islamic world was perceived by other cultures in the region as it emerged? Yes, yeah, so the book, seeing Islam as others saw it, so there's two aspects to it. One, there's a problem we have when talking about the beginnings of Islam and the Arab conquest, that Muslim accounts, only ones that survived that we can actually pick up and read, only date from the 820s or later, so that's 200 years after Muhammad and the beginnings of the Arab conquests. Whereas there are plenty of contemporary Zoroastrian, Jewish, and Christian sources. So, historiographically, we fill that gap from 620 to 820 with these non Muslim accounts. The second aspect is, of course, it's a different perspective. So, the Muslim accounts are giving us an internal perspective, though it's a much later one. So that worry that things have changed a lot over two centuries. Whereas the contemporary Christians or Astrian Jewish ones, they are outsiders, but often outsiders can, you know, it's that classic, you know, what other people can see in us. Maybe it's not the whole truth, but it's a truth in its own right. And sometimes you know, it conveys a lot more insights than our own thinking about ourselves. So they are helpful in them. They're telling us things that they see. And sometimes things they've actually heard from Muslim informants about what's going on. So partly the work was historiographical and partly looking at the emergence of Islam from an outsider's perspective. 
what are the one or two, maybe three key takeaways from your book in God's path that you would want to impress upon a potential reader? So the first is that the Muslim sources give us what will be called a hegemonic narrative. It's the story of the victors. God favored us Muslims and he helped us to capture the world. Great, that's their story. What I brought in was the story of the Christians, the Jews and the Zoroastrians and how it affected them and how they saw it. So that's my first one. It, it brings in the story of the losers, if you like, <laughs> those directly affected in a negative way by the Islamic conquests and, and thereby I deconstruct to some extent the victor's narrative. The second thing that is an important one, because it's both a victor's narrative and it's written 200 years later, the Muslim accounts don't see the world that they conquered. They don't help us to understand what the world was like in the 630s, 640s, 650s, century generally. Whereas these contemporary Christian accounts can often be very vivid about showing us that Roman world that disappeared. It's as though when you read the Muslim accounts that you jumped directly from 600 to 820. What's happened in between is gone, and in particular what happened to that late Roman Christian world is just not there. So the Christian accounts and the Jewish and Zoroastrian make very vivid this world that was transformed by the Arab conquest. One broader question before we turn to the uh, three Arab chronicles. You work on the history of a region that is not always the safest place to visit. And I am curious whether you find it more difficult to be a historian of this part of the world, given the inaccessibility of visiting certain historic sites, which would apply especially for your own interest in archaeology. On the other hand, is it possible that it's also easier than it's ever been to be a historian because you have access to anybody you want in the world who has a computer because of the ability to access libraries and so forth electronically? How do you think about that? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Because you're, you're right, there's a kind of two ways of looking at it. In the, the older style, physical, archaeological investigation where you actually go, dig, do things, has got much more difficult. I worked in Yemen in the late 90s. I worked in Syria until 2010. I actually worked in Iraq as well in the early 90s. And that sort of, you know, just happily traveling around and look at anything dig anywhere is certainly gone, but otherwise it's very difficult. But you're right, of course, that one, there's been a huge amount of digitization of manuscripts and texts are very accessible, that uh, texts have become more available. You can jump on Zoom or Skype and talk to people. You can even get them to go and take some photos for you. <laughs> so you can do a lot of that sort of work remotely. And it's on about to start an excavation in Kurdistan. And... I can gather a huge amount of information initially by just using corona satellite imagery in the 70s and a whole host of other remote sensing data, which would have been impossible when I started out in the 90s. Well, turning to your most recent work, The History of the Kings of the Persians in Three Arabic Chronicles, what are the key takeaways from that work? I imagine for most readers, the subject matter is a bit more obscure. It certainly was to me. Please expound at will. Yeah, so the 
Translations relate to a particular text, the Book of Kings or the Shahnameh, which is the Persian national epic. So although it's not so much known in the West, it is enormously popular in Iran and narrates the history of the world, going back to the first man, Gayumat, the Persian Adam, takes you through a series of kings and dynasties up until the Arab conquest, the end of the Persian Empire. So partly I wanted to make this a bit more known. Interestingly, it was actually quite popular in the 18th and 19th centuries when there were actually a number of translations into European languages. I suppose there was a love of this big, epic poetry. There's also though, a question, and again, historiography is one of my pet loves. You know, how, do we, how does this material get transmitted over time? How does it get transformed over time? And we don't really know the origins of this material. It's put into writing and versified by the famous Persian poet Firdausi around the, uh, in the 11th century and becomes a hit very quickly. And we'll say it exists in thousands and thousands of manuscripts, often beautifully illustrated. It gets taken up by numerous peoples, literally in, that, in the area of India, Mongolia, because it provides a grand imperial vision, which Islam doesn't. Islam, the rulers should be humble, they should. Uh, their hero is Omar the first, the second caliph. He rides on a donkey in a hair shirt, and just nice sweet dry bread and water. This is not, if you're a rich king, there's no way you want to follow that. <laughs> so you want to follow Husserl, the eternal soul, the grand sixth century emperor, court with thousands of chefs, the most stable masters, beautiful palaces. This is what it means to be an emperor. And so, for example, the Mughal emperors of India, they love the Shahnameh, they produce beautifully illustrated images. It's full of hunts and battles and romances between beautiful men and beautiful women. So this is the great the stuff that you really want. And a lot of people know these stories in Iran, which are really, let's say, very popular. Great warrior heroes like Rustam traverse the world fighting battles in a kind of successful Don Quixote type of way. Fidelsi interestingly wrote at the same time as Geoffrey of Monmouth, who produced the Arthur, history of King Arthur and the Britons. And they've often been compared because in both cases, we don't really know where the material came from. In the West, we're being more cynical. We tend to feel Geoffrey Monmouth made it all up. And there was no King Arthur. But in the East, the tales of the Persian kings, it's much more taken as genuine fact, celebrated epic of you know, Persian history. So I was also interested in this perspective, why in the West do we reject this seems to be this great epic history of the kings of the Britons, but in the East, the kings of the Persians is celebrated as genuine accounts of what, what happened during the Persian Empire. Well, as we come to the end of our interview, I have three questions that are kind of a lightning round that I like to ask all of our guests. The first question is, who has influenced your own work? Who do you read? Yeah, so my PhD supervisor, Patricia Croner, who's at Princeton, she provides study for a number of years at Cambridge University. Before that, she was very influential for me. She was a very brilliant, enthusiastic teacher to be pushed home, both, well, in attention to detail and critical spirit, but also to reach very widely when looking at sources and 
drawing all possible materials. Another person who I have actually met before he died was Hayden White, who was uh, very interested in what gets called narratology. How is history narrated? What kind of fictional tools are, are used to convey our message? And he doesn't just didn't just mean primary sources, ancient authors, but us too, us modern historians. What techniques do we use to persuade our audience that our message is correct? So as I find that a very interesting way of looking at our sources and our own writings. Second question. What's your favorite novel? Favorite novel. That's a tricky one. I really like dystopian fiction. And these days, there's an amazing amount of <laughs> you were saying also Netflix series and so on. There's just so much material on future worlds, generally a bit disastrous. But what I particularly like is when an author is very good at constructing a whole vision of an alternative world and how it works. That genre to me is very rich. Of course, the dystopian genre is not necessarily fiction these days. Yeah, I know. <laughs> There's so many virus movies which suddenly yes. look, oh, wow, <laughs> this is <laughs> looks truer than fiction. <laughs> Final question. What can we look forward to? What are you working on right now? So I'm looking at, we have a number of documents about Nubian slaves in the early Islamic empire, a major source of slaves. Nubia, it's quite a rich civilization in the late Roman period, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. And it initially survives quite well in the early Islamic period as a minor Christian kingdom to the south of the Islamic Empire in Egypt. But we don't know so much about it. And so, well, these days, obviously, it's got a lot of interest in terms of understanding African civilization, understanding that it actually has important and ancient roots in its own right. And I want to, certainly don't want it only to be seen as a source of slaves, but it was, of course, as, as well. Unfortunately, it's an industry or a business that has ancient roots. But at the moment, working from these sources in the place of slaves, Nubian slaves in the Islamic world, but also wanting to present a culture, an African, ancient African culture, that was a major cultural force in its own right in the period before the rise of Islam and in the first few centuries after it. A bit hesitant how I present it because <laughs> at the moment I'm at the collecting material stage, so exactly how to shape it and present it is still to be decided. No, that's uh, that, that's great insight into how these books actually get written. Thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Hoyland. Thank you, Tristan, for giving me the chance to talk about my works. This interview was conducted on July 23rd, 2021. I'm Tristan Abbey with the ILEA Review of Books. Join us online at www.aleoreview.com. That's www.aleoreview.com.